Good morning. It is uh, wonderful to be here with you to witness God's working in His people, the calling of His saints into His eternal kingdom through the ceremony and sacrament of baptism, and now to share the Word of God with you all. As we begin this time and this portion of our worship service, let us start with a prayer. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please turn with me to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. And if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 942. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. When you found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words are already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I have three points for us, um, along with a passage that we can remember and help us uh, learn this passage. And the three points are, number one, you're wrong. Number two, it's not okay. And number three, hold on. Number one, you're wrong. Number two, it's not okay. And number three, hold on. You're wrong, it's not okay. Hold on. You're wrong. From verses 1 to 5. You know, I googled, you're wrong. 
or, and I also Googled um, how to tell someone they're wrong. And it was a trip. The search result page looked like, if you looked at all the search results, it looked like we have no idea how to tell people they're wrong. I saw things like, first, take a deep breath. And then other things like, quote, before you tell them what they're doing wrong, tell them what they're doing right, unquote. And it made me think of two things, in the very least. It made me think of two things. Number one, we think we know better than everyone in the past on how to raise our children. The past generations were terrible. My parents don't know anything, etc. Number one, it made me think that we think we know better than everyone in the past. And number two, we are raising a generation of sociopaths. If someone hits another kid, if a kid hits another kid over the head with a bat, what you don't do is you don't tell them how you're really impressed by how they stepped into the swing, turned their hips before their arms followed. That's why you don't tell them. What you should tell them is that they're wrong. You don't use a bat to hit another kid over the head. When you need to tell someone that they're wrong, but first you need to fluff their egos or make them feel good, set them up, praise them, make sure that they will never doubt, quote, your unconditional love, unquote. You are teaching them, whether it's your kids or someone you have a relationship with, even in work, you are teaching them that they are supreme. And when they walk through life and go through society and realize that their feelings actually will get hurt, sometimes the things that they do is not just 50% wrong, but sometimes the things that they do are 100% wrong. That their outlook on life are skewed, is skewed and off. Because what does being wrong mean, right? To be wrong means that you don't have or you don't possess what is right. To be wrong means that truth is absent in this part of your life. In this area of your life, truth is absent. That's what it means to be wrong. Uh, my wife is a public school teacher in New York City. A lot of you here are teachers, and I think by the grace of God, a lot of you are teachers here, so I think you may relate to whatever degree, but the Department of Education or the school system in New York City is the largest school system in the entire world, not just the United States. It has over 1,800 schools with over 1.1 million students in that Department of Education. And so she's a teacher there. And just to give you a little context, our, our country, the United States of America. I know some of you are immigrants, but our country that we're living in, the United States of America, according to a 2018 Business Insider report, in world math, math across the world, we ranked top 10? No, we didn't rank top 10. Top 20 in the world. 
We didn't rank top 20. Top 30, please. Come on. 30 countries, we have to be part of it. In 2018, the U.S., according to the Business Insider Report, was ranked 38th in world math. I looked up some course material and I read a few articles from math education experts. Uh, what is now um, being taught in many, you know, curriculae across the world, including, you know, what the Department of Education in New York City teaches is common core math. Uh, I think a lot of people just remember or know this as common core. There's a lot of different kinds of subjects from Common Core, but Common Core math is touted, when I read these articles by these educators, it's touted as highly effective with proven results, okay? We actually have a math teacher that's part of our membership too, so I'm interested to know what he thinks too, but I did ask her, let's have a, a, a short, quick debate. You take the side of Common Core and I'll see if I can ask you questions about what you think about Common Core math. And my wife went, why would I do that? Common Core math is terrible. I was like, what? But that's what you're told to teach. So I decided to look at the material from pre-K to eighth grade. So, you know, as a kid, if you're not a Gen Zer, if you're a Gen Zer, you most likely grew up with Common Core math, a lot of you at least. So as a kid, I learned pre-K, I learned things like one plus one equals two. It's not a joke, I really did. A lot of you also did as well. Two plus two equals four, right? Two plus two, oh, and then you count one, two, three, four. That's what you would learn. The worksheet I saw went something like this for pre-K. It had a little subtitle and it said, or instructions on the top, it said answers are accepted as long as it's within 10, okay? Answers are accepted, they're acceptable, they're right, as long as it's within 10. And these are the questions, pre-K worksheet, nine minus one, seven plus two, five plus three. Now, if you're teaching math, you're gonna teach these pre-Kers, nine minus one equals what? As long as it's within 10, you say it's correct. And so what is the reasoning behind this? So, you know, I went down the rabbit hole. I wanted to read what everybody had to write, these experts, these people with masters in mathematics. I still don't know what that means. What do you get? A, uh, you're mathing around? What, what is going on? But they have masters in mathematics. And so they are teaching this and they are saying this. This is the predominant reason that I've read. The reasoning behind this is that they don't want to just teach two plus two equals four. And I get that. It makes sense because kids don't know how to translate two plus two into the real world. I get it. So teachers, experts, whoever came up with this idea, they decided that they or we as teachers need to start to teach abstract and quantitative reasoning, contextualization. Because when you look at two plus two equals four and when you look at a word problem, you can't decontextualize it down to the formulaic two plus two equals four. So what we need to do is we need to teach abstract and quantitative reasoning along with rudimentary math skills. In fact, the reasoning part is more important is what they have surmised and gathered. So in the grades after pre-K, I saw worksheets with instructions to, for kids to get into groups 
and have them. They give them a, an equation. They solve the equation. But in the groups, they share how they got the answer. So you give a math problem. And when they come into groups, they are sharing how did you come up with the answer. And these are the instructions in this activity. There are no right and wrong answers. But by sharing their thoughts, it's about how they got to the solution that's more important than the solution itself. Now, if this sounds to you insane and untenable, it does because it is, actually. Um, I'm not going to say any, anything else, but if you RSVP to a wedding and you say, how many people are coming, and you go 1 to 14, or you go 26, I don't think your answer, the people that are RSVPing to your event, will be, wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for that answer. Please tell me the more important part of that answer on how you got to that number. That's not what people will start to think. When I mentioned that we are adopting more and more sociopathic methodologies, by that I mean that what we are promoting and teaching, championing, these things are making us more antisocial. It's becoming more me-centered. And when I become more me-centered in my upbringing, I become more resentful of other people. So, you're wrong. How do you respond when you're wrong? How should we respond when we're wrong? By the time we get to chapter 4 in Hebrews, we saw that the author gives us the good news and the bad news, then the good news in chapter 3, the bad news, right? What about chapter 4? Does he go back then to the good news? How does it start? In the Greek text, it actually doesn't start with the word therefore that we read. It starts with the Greek word phobeo. Phobeo is where we get the word phobia. It means to fear. If entrance into the rest of God, if that's the goal, the goal is to go into the rest of God, the rest of God is the right answer. There are people who could not enter because of, and the verse before says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of, they didn't enter because of unbelief. The author continues on this topic of not being able to answer the wrong answer by starting with the word phobeo, followed by a therefore. This is what we call a horatory subjunctive. The word fear is in, in a position that connects the passage it's a, used as a conjunctive or, or a horatory conjunctive because the word fear is to be placed in an emphatic position. It's connecting the two passages, but fear is the emphasis word. Begin to fear, therefore, is how you would have understood it in the Greek. It just doesn't make sense when we say that in English. There are two words accented in the beginning of this passage on purpose. Why? Because... If you are in fact and indeed wrong, what is the right attitude to possess? So this chapter is a continuation of the exhortation and warning from the previous chapter. In fact, it should be clear that by quoting again from Psalm 95, also in this passage, that what this author intends to do is to further exegete 
It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In Numbers 13, we saw that it's the same group of people. The same group of people heard the good news. Joshua and Caleb brought them good news, but they not only refused to believe it, they chose outright to rebel against it, rebel against God, saying, choose for us a new leader and have him take us back to Egypt. They heard the same message. They heard the same good news. Here is where Augustine or Augustine differentiated between the visible church and the invisible church. See, the visible church is everyone here. It's the people who have actually even been baptized, the people attending Sunday service. It's the people that hear the good news. However, the reality shown to us here is that not everyone in the visible church is a part of the invisible church because the invisible church are the ones that enter into the promised land. They listened to the good news and they had faith or pistis, not apistia, unbelief. The difference between the invisible church and the visible church is belief and unbelief. So believe or unbelieve what? It's the promise, the promise that God gives of entering into his rest. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. What is the rest that God is, has promised? And what is the rest that is still open to those that would believe in verse 1? In the previous passage and in Numbers 14, it's referred to and we see it's connected to the promised land. When God says that these people will not enter my rest, he literally means the promised land. That's what we heard. That's what we saw last week. That's what number, uh, Psalm 95 was referring to. But here the author goes even further. What's even further than the promised land? What does God's rest point to? What does the promised land point back to? He points it back to the creation of the world in Genesis 2.2. Why? Because on the seventh day, God rested. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that God rested? God's rest points to the rest he had from his work in creation. That's Genesis 2.2. He finished his work of creation on the seventh day and he called it rest. So then, keeping this in mind or having this in mind, what does rest point to? When people are in sin or steeped in sin, a lot of times they don't want to repent. Why should I repent? Who are you to tell me that I am wrong? 
get out of here. I like the way I am. I love me for me. But why does the author here tell people that they're wrong? Because they will never enter into God's rest if they're wrong. And if you never enter into God's rest, what does that mean? You will never be complete. You will never be complete. Being wrong here isn't something where you're like, oops, I was wrong, never mind. Next time I'll just erase my answer to, from three and put four. The right or wrong answer is about belief or unbelief in the promise, and your belief or unbelief is predicated on this reality. The wrong answer means you cannot enter his rest. You will not see completion. Second point is, it's not okay, from verses 6 through 10. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I want to take this whole thing and just talk about it. In verse 6, the author summarizes the previous five verses that we read, and now he's going to further exegete Psalm 95. He now capitalizes on the word today, showing that now in the hearing or reading of this passage, the day God's promise is made available to hear the good news and believe it. That's today. Verse 7 is showing us that God will make a future date today, namely the day that his promise will be spoken and you would have the opportunity to believe. When is that day? That day is today. I actually did uh, Google a lot more. I also Googled it's not okay. And so when you Google it, you'll see a majority of return results saying this line. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. That is so terrible. It's so bad. It's okay not to be okay. It's fine not to be fine. It's good not to be good. It's normal not to be normal. Might as well say it's good to be evil and it's evil to be good. Because the truth is, it's not okay to be not okay. I was actually a part, and this is interesting enough, before I became a pastor, I was actually a part of some interventions in my life where because if you sincerely loved somebody, you would tell him or her that it's not okay that he or she is addicted to drugs. It's not okay to have an affair. It's not okay that you just used $20,000 on the blackjack table and now you're going to the ATM to pull out more cash. In fact, if I told them that it is okay to do these things, I would think that that would be tantamount to me hating them, not loving them. Saying that something is not okay means that you shouldn't be satisfied or complacent where you are. There is something that isn't finished or done yet. 
And in verse 8, the author brings Joshua in now. Moses from the chapter before, now it's Joshua. Moses couldn't bring them to the promised land, and Joshua settling in the land that Israel currently occupied also was not a fulfillment of the rest God had promised. And you're like, what? Because I thought going into the promised land was the rest because that's what God would point to. But if that were the case, if them entering into Israel was entering into God's rest, then Psalm 95 would not have been expressed by God. Because when is that? That's after. That's after they went in Psalm 95. is written by David, right? The rest that is shown here is to be understood and seen then, and we use this word, eschatologically. Eschatologically. And in verse 9, instead of using rest as he did in the past, he does this by using the word Sabbath. And if you look at verse 9, it's meant to parallel verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, meaning the rest. In verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, he uses the same exact formula of words, so then there remains a Sabbath rest. So he uses the word Sabbath here. And the word Sabbath rest is translated from the Greek word Sabbatismos. And Sabbatismos isn't just referring to the day, but the actual observance of the day. So in a sense, it is the Sabbath observance or celebration, not just rest, but there is an interchange between the rest and Sabbath celebration because what it is ultimately pointing to, remember I said this is eschatological, it's pointing to our completion and the completion of God's work. That means our enjoyment with Him and our enjoyment of Him resting in His work. When we gather on Sundays, this is a Sabbath celebration that we are observing. We preach the gospel, we sing the gospel, we pray the gospel because we are celebrating the gospel. We are celebrating the good news that was given to us. There is an eternal celebration awaiting those with faith in the presence of God where there will be unending praise and adoration. You know, when I was younger, some people would comment on this idea. They would say things like, well, I just sing God's praises all day in heaven? That doesn't sound too good to me. But when your blind eyes are open, you see that God not only makes the not okay okay, but he finishes and completes his work. You are able to recognize and admire and gaze upon not only the magnificent work of the Creator, but the Creator Himself. How would you imagine you would respond then? The more beautiful an object is, the longer I am able to reflect on its beauty. The more beautiful the musical piece is, the more I can listen to it, admire it, reflect on its beauty. How beautiful do you imagine God's finished masterpiece would be? How incredible the masterpiece's master. 
I am not afraid of being bored in heaven. Rather, I think I would be afraid of how I could ever gaze upon such infinite beauty. But that's the promise that those that enter into his rest also rest with him. What a promise. And here's the last point. Hold on. Verses 11 to 14. Let me first read for us 11 to 13 again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now there are two things that we are exhorted to in verse 11. First, obviously, it is the striving. Striving of what? Striving here isn't pointing to a brand new concept. He's not introducing some new element. Therefore, what striving means is to show us that we ought to point back and remember. What are we striving? It's the whole pointing back to the concept of belief or of having faith. To keep your faith is a striving. It is a struggle at times. But being reminded of the promise, the exhortation is to keep on struggling, to keep on striving. Secondly, it's not to fall by the same sort of disobedience. What that means is don't disobey. Or it means obey God, because two negatives, right? Math. But uh, it means obey God. And I hope it should come as no surprise that when these two concepts are put together, they are exactly what Peter told his listeners after a sermon when they were cut to the heart and they asked him, what shall we do? And he responded, do you remember? He responded by saying, repent and be baptized. Baptism is how we obey God. This is what he commanded the people of faith to do. We get baptized in obedience to Jesus. Secondly, we repent. That means we turn from a disobedient heart to an obedient one. The great commission that Jesus gives his disciples is to be baptized, to go and be baptized, to go and baptize rather, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the same message. Jesus is giving the same message. Go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the same message. You are part of the invisible church. How do you know? You believe and you obey. You repent and are baptized. It's not through repentance and that baptism, that act that you become saved, but because you are saved, you are able to repent and become baptized. You are able to obey. How does this happen, though? How does this happen? That's where we get to verses 12 to 13. If this passage was a musical piece, verses 12 to 13 would be the dramatic crescendo and the climax of the passage. How does this all happen? And the author shows us it's the Word of God. The Word of God isn't just static letters on a page. He says the Word of God is living and 
active. The words for living and active means just that. It's not figurative. The words living is for actual living things. That means the word of God is alive and it is moving. And if something is alive and is moving, we are confronted with its reality. Just as if I walked in front of Pastor Paul, I am confronting him with the reality that I am there. The word of God is alive and moving. We are confronting with its reality. But it not only confronts us, it says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a lethal weapon. That means it's threatening and more threatening than any weapon you would face. Imagine facing a lethal weapon. The Word of God is more lethal than that. It exposes the intentions of your heart and renders you defenseless before God's piercing gaze. If you come to our Saturday morning prayer meetings, which I invite and encourage you all to do, we pray for our church and we pray for our world. We pray for other churches at times, our neighboring churches. Pastor Paul mentioned that I took the art of sword fighting when I was a kid. In Korean, it's called gumdo. In Japanese, it's called kendo. And there is a certain level that when you pass, that you go from fighting with bamboo sticks to carrying wooden sticks, and then to receiving a sword of your own. And in receiving an actual sword, I was giving, given a lesson along with it. And this was the lesson. When someone would unsheathe his sword, it means that someone is going to die. We were to treat our sword as if it were our life, because it was. You literally held life and death in your hands. And I would imagine it's similar with any weapon training. I haven't done any other weapon training, but I would imagine it's similar with any other weapon training. The Word of God here isn't sheathed. And it poses a judgment that is more threatening and sharper than any double-edged sword. It will leave you exposed and defenseless. <clears throat> when I was 17, I was taken to a regional tournament by my grandmaster. And in this regional tournament, um, I saw two masters face off. And in the beginning of the match, none, neither of them moved. They just stood like statues. It was a few minutes. But for me, it seemed much longer. I just didn't understand. So my grandmaster was next to me. So I asked him, why aren't they moving? And he just said that once someone moves, a victor is decided. I'll wait. Uh, anyway, but... I remember facing off with stronger and stronger practitioners of this art. And I realized that once you face off with someone, that's when your weaknesses are exposed. Every move you make, every breath, every sway, they all expose your weaknesses. And your opponent that you face off with reveals it. And even more so with the more expertise they have. That's the intensity here. The word of God is directly in front of you. It says there is no creature hidden from his sight. 
You can't hide from it, and we will have to give an account. It should go without saying that exposure to the word of God is exposure to God himself because he is judge. And if he is judge, who can stand before God? Psalm 76, this is what the psalmist says. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused from the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. The fearful prospect of judgment is held out for us to all recognize. That's verse 12 to 13. But that's why verse 14 is also given to us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We can't stand before God. We are exposed with the threat and lethality of God's word. When we are exposed and naked, we are left trembling. But in verse 14, come swooping in to remind us again of Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry. It's Jesus who is our high priest. He is the one that takes our sins away so that we are faultless before God. He is the guarantee that we will celebrate in God's presence, celebrate the Sabbath rest that he has prepared for his people. So the author makes one final and powerful exhortation and appeal to the church in this passage by telling the church to hold fast our confession. Hold on to Jesus Christ. This is the verse, and that is not just an afterthought. It's the conclusion to the climax of showing us the power of God's word. Who will remain when the fiery judgment comes? Who is given certainty and promise that they will celebrate with all God's people and his eternal rest? Those that hold fast their confession, those that remain in the faith, those that put their trust in Jesus Christ. The testing and trials will come. You will be tempted to let go, but pray that you will have faith that will not be shaken. In John chapter 6, Jesus would say hard words, and a lot of people left, people that called him themselves disciples. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 66 after this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So Jesus turns to the 12, and this is what he says. Do you want to go away as well? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. After that, Jesus reminds them that he is the one that chose them. They are God's people. If you are God's people, this is the exhortation. Stay the course. Hold on, people of God. Hold on to Jesus Christ. He is faithful, and he saves us so that we can enter into his Sabbath rest. Praise be to God Almighty, who is merciful to all those that fear and love him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. 
the sheer weight, the heaviness of your glory exceeds our understanding. However, you don't leave us bereft in our ignorance or in our sinfulness. But Lord, by your mercy, you give us salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we ask that we will continue to hold on to this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and live our lives in a manner that pleases you, that honors you, that gives you all the glory until we see you face to face, until we enter into your eternal rest. Lord God, guide your people and lead us. Let's take this time to pray. And as we reflect on the word that we have been given, let's lift up our hearts to God. Are there areas in your life that reflect unbelief rather than belief? Then confess your sin to the Lord. For as we have heard, Jesus is our high priest and our God is merciful. And he will listen to the prayers of those that place their trust in him. Ask God to change your heart so that you can live a life fully repentant, adhering to him and him alone. Let's pray.